Hello everyone and welcome back to the final episode of series two of the Cloak and Dagger podcast. You are listening to your host Will Davis Coleman and I'm joined as ever by my co-host Patrick Courtney. How are you doing Will? Not too shabby to be honest. I'm really really excited about this one. I don't know why but this one's really like going to be amazing. I just can feel it. <laughs> Good well big one to end on because I can't believe we're now done with season two. It's It's kind of flown by. Like, I can't believe we're already at the end of season two. It seems like, it really seems like it was really, I mean, I know it's only six episodes, but it just seems to fly by. Yeah, time flies when you're having fun, mate. That's why. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, Just to remind everyone out there, uh, we have our Instagram page that you guys can all follow. And we post three times a week when we're throwing up episodes. And we do a sneak peek on the Monday. Uh, We do an episode, like a whole load of, slides that we put up on the Wednesday when we release the episode and then we do a final fact on our wait there's more post on on the Friday so uh tune in on that uh our handle is at cloak and dagger podcast and we will see you there yeah it's a really good place to see some cool images because actually you get a lot from seeing like the real images or paintings of people we're talking about and so many of the stories have such like interesting artwork or photography I mean we do you know we did jfk a few weeks ago like there's some really interesting stuff you can look at there so yeah tune in for that but yeah yeah um, and it's good for like following along you can see what we're talking about and yeah you can get a bit more because what you can't get in a podcast is obviously visuals so <laughs> that's why we, <laughs> yeah. it's good to have an instagram account as well uh, but yeah should we get started yeah let's jump into it So this week, uh, I'm going to start with a bit more of a dramatic start, um, because it's always more fun to do it that Very way, fun. Cool. and then right. we'll come back. Okay, settle in, listener. <laughs> On a balmy August morning in 1664, in the free city of Lausanne in Switzerland, a church service has just finished, and the congregation are spilling out into the graveyard and the streets beyond. Many of these men and women were English exiles, One man in particular walks into the graveyard deep in conversation with one of his guards, of which he has three. When three well-dressed men suddenly launch themselves at him. Two men brandishing swords and keep the man's security busy, whilst the third man takes careful aim with his flintlock pistol and shoots his target dead. As the target breathes his last, he must surely have understood the reason for his own assassination. Whoa. Cool. <laughs> Death in a graveyard. That's pretty intense. I know, right? Real symbolism there. Yeah, I yeah. feel like. <laughs> I mean, it'd be even so, better if he just fell into like an open grave, so they'd, they'd done their job for them. But then it'd be a bit like Faulty Towers or Monty Python, wouldn't <laughs> yeah, it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit too it's a bit too slapstick, then, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yes, this week, listener, I um, have chosen to do a assassination uh, which took place in 1664. Which, if anyone knows their history, will they will remember that the it's just just after the English Civil War has finished. Or rather, it's about a decade after. Um, But basically, our story begins in the heart of the English Civil War and goes all the way through to 1664 with this man's death. So the English Civil War, for those people who don't know out there, was fought between the king and his royalist faction and the parliamentarians and and obviously the Roundheads. The Roundheads, they were called Royalists and Roundheads. And um, the English Civil War was actually three successive wars where the, the king lost all three. This is King Charles I. And the wars started in 1642 and dragged on for nine bloody years until 1651 when uh, the parliamentarians beat the, the Royalists. And suddenly, for the very first time, in English history since oh since Roman times there were no kings in England or Not Scotland for that matter yeah, yeah i guess yeah there would never be a case where there wasn't any so yeah so th- and and what followed was 13 years of a republic it was known as the republic of england but actually it was more of a dictatorship run by yes. a man named oliver cromwell who is a yes. very controversial figure in English history and has, in my opinion, no right at all to have his statue outside of the Houses of Parliament. But that's just my own he opinion, was a, you yeah, guys he was out there. A, he was an awful man, wasn't he? Didn't he, like, was 
horribly cruel to the Irish and to and just to, to loads of people. Didn't he cancel Christmas as well? Yeah, this is a this is a common misconception. He didn't cancel Christmas, but the uh, the puritanical church, which he was kind of head of, did cancel Christmas. <laughs> I mean, so I you guess know, he canceled Christmas. He, he kind closed of all the theaters. He closed all the pubs. He closed the dog pits. Like he was well, that was a good thing, obviously. And the that's, bear pits. Yeah, that's quite nice. Yeah. But like at the and time the it was like pits. what? Yeah, there were bear pits all over Southwark in London. Wow. Yeah. Okay, well that's I'm 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 okay good. with that, but closing the pubs, I mean, you know, I know. know your audience, know your people. You can't close <laughs> pubs in Britain. Very true, very true. Um so anyway, yeah, so uh basically the war broke out originally because Parliament was getting sick and tired of the king constantly asking for money as he was wanting to do and also because the king decided that that parliament he believed in the divine right of kings which means he was answerable only to god and parliament went excuse me mate that's not really how it works anymore we're quite important and every time that happened he would like banish an mp he just goes no fuck off you're (laughs) out and so he there was no sort of I mean, I'm painting quite a broad stroke brush here, but basically he was an intransigent monarch who Mm. wouldn't deal, suffer fools. So if people, he believed that he, the buck stopped with him, not with parliament. So this is the reason. It's like, where was power? Where was power really residing? It's that kind Um, of changing times where, I mean, you know, this this is quite early because we've talked about lots of times in history where there's this struggle of power between democratic groups um, and the the nobility or the or no the the monarchy because that's happening kind of all across Europe and will happen across the world um, in a few hundred years. But yeah, so absolutely, no, absolutely. Um, and what what's also happening at the same time is Charles I was married to Henrietta Maria of France, and she was a Catholic. And and what had happened was England had become slowly more and more high Anglican, which is basically just quickly protestant protestant churches like white walls a bare cross mm. and no sort of statues anywhere and no gold the further, yeah exactly whereas if you go to a catholic church anywhere in europe there's gold everywhere there's like lots and lots of uh statues and it's all very very opulent <laughs> as um, someone who's not that religious catholic churches are more fun to go to they're way cooler to look at <laughs> they're really like they're magnificent they're so they're so outlandish and lavish uh, which is yeah. kind of the point. That's why the, the Protestant didn't like it. But yeah, for modern day, they're much more interesting to go to than our old C of E churches that are a bit dull. <laughs> well, well, this is the thing. So Charles I was becoming progressively more colourful and gold statuesque. Mm. And everyone in England, well, for the majority, or, no, or maybe not for the majority, about half and half, because of course it was a civil war, um, half of them were like, yeah, that's great. The other half were like, no, you need to have white walls. We're done with Catholicism. So, so yeah, there was two things going on. It was not just where the power resided, but which religion was was the state religion. How how many years after the after is this after uh, Elizabeth the first? Because that's when because the, the all be- before her from Henry the eighth to her is that constant battle between is is England Catholic or Protestant, and then after her, at least I was taught. It was it, that's where it kind of settled down, but I guess it never, it still doesn't go away. And actually, Charles I is almost now leaning back to Catholicism. Well, it's one of those things. So uh, Elizabeth comes to the throne in 1558, and she dies in 1603. Um, mm-hmm. But even after her death, even though there'd been a sort of amnesty between the two, the Catholics and the Protestants, um, her successor James I was almost blown up in the gunpowder plot by a bunch of Catholic dissidents. Good point. So it's still yeah. going on way past her reign. So it's always bubbling along, and it just hits an absolute boiling point in the sixteen in the sixteen forties. Right. Um, but essentially, just quickly, because I don't want to tell the whole story of the English Civil <laughs> yeah. War. Um, after fa- after failure and uh, like compounded by failures, the royalists lose. Charles the first is actually put on trial by the parliamentarians Mm. and the massive shock was that they found him guilty of treason against his own country which is weird because he didn't recognize the court's legitimacy because he was like how can you try me i am god's anointed like i'm your king you can't put me on he tries everyone else the only one who can try him is god but they were like no the people can try you 
Yes, exactly. And um, uh, a body of parliamentarian leaders, including one man named Sir John Lyle, who will become a very important part of this story, uh, sentenced him to death. Wow. And this has never been done before, ever. You can't put your own monarch on trial. In, well, at least in England, it's just not heard of until mm. now. And it's only happened once and it will probably never happen again. Um, very interesting to know where else this has ever happened before then, because obviously we go on and talk about lots of other times when, you know, the people rise up against a uh, king. But in such a, I mean, definitely within European, you know, late medieval times, this is one of the first. But it'd be really interesting to know across the world, where else does a body of people acting for the people in this kind of parliamentary democracy they're the ones who put a king, not even just kill him in like a mob rule sort of way, but they put him on trial and sentence him to death. It's like a formal process. So yeah, it's... I know. It is really shocking when you mm. think about it. Um, so Charles I accepts that he's going to be killed. And even though there's all sorts of plots to try and get him away, he actually tells them not to take him because he basically works out he wants to be a martyr. Again, this is very broad stroke history, but he accepted the fact he was going to die and on the day at Whitehall Palace um, he wore an, two shirts so that he wouldn't be shivering because then because it's a very cold day he didn't want people to think he was shivering in fear uh. so and then the hangman not the hangman the executioners wore which is quite common um, hoods so no one could see their faces like masks mm. and in front of a crowd a full crowd who were shocked to see this he had his head chopped from his head um, chopped from his body wow. and that was I guess that was if you're in the chance. crowd you might think I mean obviously something's going to happen they're obviously like you probably people are discussing there's no way they're actually going to kill him they're not going to do this it's going to we're going to get very close to it and then he's going to ask for mercy and they're going to allow him to just you know go away and or like you know be banished from the country or something like that they probably weren't thinking they're actually going to kill him yeah, it's been such a actually, shocking moment and just completely turn your entire world upside down. Because for so many people, the king is essentially God's anointed on earth. He is has the divine right to rule over you. They are he is another being compared to you, and yet dies like everyone else. Yeah, exactly. Uh, lots of people managed to dip handkerchiefs in his blood as a sign of martyrdom. They could then use they had like royal blood in their possession, all that sort of thing. Um, mm. There were lots of um, army representation at the event because they were expecting trouble but there actually wasn't any uh, of any significance um but then what happens is is you have a scramble to try and capture the king's sons because they're right. still in the country and they both managed to get away but only just oh, okay. charles the, the the future charles the second no spoilers the monarchy returns <laughs> obviously queen elizabeth we, st we still have one now. so yeah yeah um he manages to just get out but he has to go on this really long ride and in, in which he actually disguises himself as a woman a few times and as a page to a lady as well just to get out the country wow, and he what hides a cool up story a tree. that would be yeah, yeah he hides up a tree for ages and the, uh, that tree is still around you can go and see charles the second's tree really you can go hide yeah. can you you probably aren't allowed on it Funnily they enough, all... no, you yeah, can't. Yeah. It's uh -huh. an old tree. You know, this is the 1640s. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so uh, they flee to the to the continent and set up a court out of England in France and in um, in the Low Countries for a, for a long time throughout the entire 13 year republic. Um, but one of these men, as I say, who s signed the death warrant was a man named Sir John Lyle. Now. He is the victim of our story. He's the one who was shot in the graveyard in Lausanne ah. in 1664. Now, he, I think we should just do a quick background into who he is, and then I will start looking at the assassin as well. So we'll do a little flip-flop. Cool. So, Sir John Lyle was a lawyer who was educated at Oxford and then went to the Middle Temple and matriculated as a lawyer there mm -hmm. and was called to the bar in 1633. So he's actually... Uh, of the generation of Charles I. So he's about the same age as Charles I was um, at the time. And he was also the MP, you'll like this, Patrick, for Winchester. No way! For both, yeah, for both the short and long parliaments, which are the, the two so cool. main parliaments. I, that I'm come. from Winchester, for listeners. <laughs> um, that's oh, so yeah. interesting. Oh, cool. Yeah, so he, um, oh, he is... was quite... 
this has changed this story. I'm suddenly on his side. <laughs> <laughs> he was a very interesting man. He was a uh, very intellectual, and he he really did believe in. He had a real religious fervor towards Protestantism, as he mm. probably had to to survive through the the rule of Oliver Cromwell. Oliver yeah. Cromwell ruled as a dictator, as I say, for thirteen years, and on his death. The uh, the royal family are actually invited back to rule England because <laughs> he did such a shit they job. They just chopped him off. Yeah, <laughs> they exactly. just really didn't like. They went. This did not go well. <laughs> yeah, um, and then in in Parliament he held quite a few um, important positions. So he was chairman of the committee that investigated Cromwell's allegations against the Earl of Manchester in December 1644. So this was a very important uh, trial that he adjudicated over. He basically became. Cromwell, when Cromwell set up his own state, if you like, he became the chief justice. So he was the sort of wise man at the top. He was the head judge, and he would administer justice throughout the land. But yeah, that like means the... that he was complicit with lots of the crime, not the crimes. To Oliver Cromwell's eyes, it was the law, but it's mm. kind of criminal. He's kind of I mean? a right-hand man in terms of law. Yeah. He was also very important. So during the war, the reason that the uh, parliamentarians won was actually through military technology. They started um, reorganising their armies into something called the New Model Army. And he was in charge of the committee that created that model in 1645. Wow. So he was instrumental to bringing about the end of Charles I's reign. So he was really, really important guy. Really important okay. figure in this, in this um, republic, this new republic. Yeah, and he actually, after the Second Civil War, so I said there were three civil wars, basically what would happen is Charles I would lose, then they'd say, come on then, come say you're sorry, and he'll go, no, again! <laughs> and he <laughs> did that keep fighting. three times. Yeah. Oh, um, that's that's actually, that's, that's kind of awful then, because he's just throwing, because, you know, it's these MPs and, you know, high lords and very well-to-do people fighting against the monarchy, and then the poor peasant farmers who just have to keep picking up spears and stabbing each other until they settle the differences that's quite sad actually the fact that they it couldn't is. they couldn't handle this themselves they had to keep just throwing innocent lives at each other who probably didn't give a shit who was really ruling them because it doesn't make a difference to them really so well this is what's actually really pissed john lyle off because he actually voted against continuing negotiations with the king after the second civil war because he was like he we can't trust the king's word and he, we're just basically... we're just going to end up in another war. Like, there's no point. Yeah. Oh wow. Oh, so I like this guy. Yeah. He he has. Uh, he definitely has. Uh, he didn't like the king, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> um, after the execution, um, he was also the one who uh, who he was one of the commissioners who framed the new republican constitution. So he's a little bit like um, one of the founding fathers of the the American Revolution that happens a century it, later. So if we had stayed a republic he could have been a founding father that's really interesting yeah oh, and how different even... that imagine that imagine if cromwell was r washington i mean that could have had, if the, if that had stayed it kind of would have been the case yeah would they, would they would even have. be a, i mean america would be entirely different as well because they wouldn't have been fighting i mean they would have just been fighting against instead a of a king power. a president yeah. so maybe they, they would have got have changed maybe they would have got their own king so just Possibly, to yeah. just to counter us, so when we had a king, they decided to get a president. If we had a president, maybe they would have gone. Well, we'll have our own king. Then it would have been <laughs> King Washington. Yeah, um, he also really wanted um, Oliver Cromwell. Quite weirdly, he wanted Cromwell to take the crown. Really? So oh. he was a major supporter of him becoming Oliver the First of England. That's so interesting. But Cromwell yeah, didn't so have like a claim because isn't that normally that's the normal proceedings that you have to put forward someone with some vague ancestral claim to a like a a king that lived four hundred years ago or something? Or was it just they were no, we're starting again. This is a brand new line of monarchs. I think I think it was that. I think it was a restart. Having said that though, Oliver Cromwell was related to Thomas Cromwell, and Thomas Cromwell's family eventually marry into the baronies and the nobility and he can probably find a route back to the royal family quite well mm. in fact john lyle himself was a i think five way whatever five times six times great grandson of edward the third so actually oh, okay. he had royal blood in him as well um but uh he also the, the final thing to say about sir john lyle before he uh whilst he was still in power was he acted as as i say president of the high court of justice when the trial of ringleaders of a royalist conspiracy against the Republic 
um, happened in 1658, and he actually uh, sentenced them to execution. So he was quite often seen as sort of Lord Death. Wow. For royalist conspirators, because they knew Lyle wouldn't let them get away with it. Wow. Okay. So actually, he was kind of the, the he. I was going to say he's doing like Cromwell's dirty work, but he's not. He's doing the kind of harsh punishment. He's almost yeah, like he's, he's like almost like he's the he's the visual executioner. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, but then what happens is after the death of Cromwell in I think it's sixteen fifty nine. Uh, he then has to flee the country because Charles II, who is the son of, obviously, Charles I, uh, returns in 1660. And so he flees with a load of other really important uh, Republican top Mm. bigwigs um, to the continent. And they flee mainly to Switzerland because Switzerland is a free state and has always been neutral since the Middle Ages. So it's harder to, you know, they, they accept whoever. You know, mm, it's easy mm. for them to, to get into places. So he actually flees there and settles in uh, Lausanne, which is where he'll meet his end in 1664. Ah, okay. Um, but he was he was so he was known to be a lot of fun and had lots of charm. Some of the Swiss um, commented when he arrived. He was there with uh, some other leading Republicans, including Ludlow, Wally, and Goff, who were three very important men in the cabinet of of Oliver Cromwell. And he was said to have the most charm of the four of them. That probably doesn't say very much for them if they (laughs) cancel Christmas and pubs and everything. Yeah, they're all probably a bit miserable. (laughs) So the charming among, you know, miserable bastards isn't isn't the best compliment. Yeah, exactly. Um, So what happens next in history is Charles II gets back on the throne and he opens up all the theatres, he opens up the pubs, everyone loves him. It's a massive orgy, basically. <laughs> it's like the absolute opposite of what the last 13 years have been. Mm. And mm. what happens is, he is obviously fucking pissed that his dad is dead, as you mm. would expect. And so he writes up 49 named individuals and the two unknown executioners to face the capital charge of treason. And so what happens is he actually, Parliament supports this. So Parliament's obviously completely like, oh, yes, of course, Your Majesty. Yes, Your Majesty. So sorry, Your Majesty, kind of thing. (laughs) Um, um, Of those who were listed to receive the punishment, 24 had actually already died, but he wanted them um, unearthed, unburied. What's it called? (laughs) Disinterred? Uh, What do you call it? Exhumed. Exhumed, Exhumed. that's the word. Yeah, yeah. He He wanted their bodies exhumed and buried in unmarked graves. And he didn't even have to worry too much about that because there was so much hatred towards these men that, for instance, Cromwell's body was dug up, it was hanged, and then thrown in a river, which is actually a lot like Jacopo... De Patsy, um, yeah, from the the Patsy conspiracy. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's the same kind of thing where it's not just about uh, killing the person, it's about, like, destroying their, their, their good name but also possibly their chances of getting into heaven. You know, it's about really going at them as much as you can to to enact your revenge. And it's probably also, you know, a case of he's annoyed that Cromwell died, uh, you know, not by his hand or by one of his uh, supporters' hands. You know, he he died he died yeah. in his bed, didn't he? He died of an illness. Or... Yeah, he did. He died. He died of old so age. Well, not it, quite like stress, probably. Yeah, yeah. But um, so it's like yeah, it's he's he's disappointed. He wasn't able to exact his revenge. So this is his version of revenge, um, by just digging up the body and throwing it in a river. Yeah, and actually, um, I forgot to say the ones who had already died. He had their che- their chests, their heads chopped off, and put on spikes which is normal, that happened a lot. But um, mm. instead of putting it on London Bridge, he put it above Westminster Hall, where his father had been executed. So wow. their heads were lined above her. He was a mad, he was so angry. And so what yeah. happened was, you, he had a whole line of retainers lining up to to be sent out to kill or bring back these other men who'd fled. Now, these, of those men... Well, these people who were, like, volu- they they came up to volunteer to do this. He didn't, like, oh, some absolutely. of them. They were like, no, sir, I shall do this for you. Yeah, yeah, of course, because you want to mm. gain favour, don't you? Yeah. Um, and uh, out there, there were 21 of these men had fled Britain, and they were mostly, in, as I say, the low countries or in Switzerland. And only three, three of them survive the regicide killings. And wow. those three only survive because they fled to New England... 
So back in the day when it was still tiny, we're talking at the very beginnings of the American settlement, they fled there. And despite a search, he sent men over there. He crossed the Atlantic to try and find them and they couldn't be found, but they did survive. So those wow. three men survived. But so they had that, to go. I mean, that's extreme. They have to go to the new world. This these burgeoning colonies. I mean, that is like going to a different planet for them, yeah. just to escape the ire. And then they almost didn't. That's so amazing that they I almost know. got caught anyway. Yeah. So now enter the assassin of um, of Sir John Lyle. Now, this man in particular is actually a relation of mine. <laughs> <gasps> no way really yeah so he's um i should say his name so his name is sir james fitz edmund cotter and he is my eight times great grandfather oh so my straight god straight up the line yeah but yeah so sir james cotter was born in 1630 which is the same year as charles ii and okay he'd had quite an interesting he was from cork his family were from cork and he was a staunch supporter of the royalist cause, always had been. But his family had fallen on hard times. So he was, it was dwindling, their support was dwindling. Mm. And But one thing he was very good at doing, apparently, was sailing. He was in the Navy. He, or rather, he didn't really have, a, he did have the Royal Navy, but he, he was a skilled sailor. And mm. it, it looks like that, so the, um, King Charles II has a younger brother called King James II. He'll become King James II after Charles dies. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And he was Admiral of the Fleet back in the day. And it seems that Sir James Fitzedmund Cotter, my eight times great-grandfather, was a friend of James II. Wow. Because James II had land in Cork and they would sail together as well in battle and so on. Mm. So, um, so... Yeah, Cotter had a, a sort of in with the royal family then. And so when the, they return to, you know, being restored, he puts his name forward to say, let me go after some of these men for you. And Charles receives him. And apparently they knew each other, which I think is it's sort of mind boggling to me that my eight times great grandfather <laughs> knew Charles II. Yeah. But anyway, um, and he said um, he sent him after Sir John Lyle in particular. Because wow. he was the one who was Lord Death. Which was he perhaps like uh, public enemy number one? Like he was probably, I mean, other than Cromwell, who's already dead, he would have been the one they wanted to go after most. So it's actually, it's a, it, it's very, uh, it's a big honour for your ancestor to be given this task, this most important task to hunt down, this yeah. most foul enemy of the crown. That's the thing. So he, uh, yeah, it absolutely, he was one of the last bigwigs who wasn't dead. Because remember, 13 years after fighting a war which had lasted nine years, that's a long time when you think about it to mm. sort of survive in the middle of the 1600s. So it's a really important, like, distinction that most of them, as I say, 24 of them were already dead. So Lyle yeah. was one yeah. of the last bigwigs to come and get. So what does my erstwhile eight times great-grandfather do he goes back to his lands in cork and talks to several other of the lords over there who were sort of minor gentry they weren't as big they weren't big shots like you know like the bit like the the dukes of the kingdom or anything like that Mm. um but uh the ones that he recruited were miles crowley and john reardon and they were both irish gentlemen who and i'm quoting here fell on hard times so basically they probably had their lands taken away from them by cromwell and hadn't had them back so they were penniless but they had blue blood if you like wow so would there been a kind of a, a certain element of you know it's not just for the king and they're not just doing this because you know cromwell and john lyle killed their king it's also because of the irish hatred for cromwell and how poor and how destroyed their lives were like they saw these guys as enemies as well Absolutely. Yeah, I hadn't really thought of it like that because we're still at the point where, how do I put this? All three of these men, Miles Crowley, John Reardon and Sir James Cotter, were of English extraction, but from at least three centuries ago. So they are what we call the Anglo-Irish, but they were so assimilated into Irish society that at this Mm. point they were practically Irish. If you see yes, I mean. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, absolutely. I hadn't actually thought of it that way. Yeah, they would have definitely seen it like that. But also, it's a major opportunity 
because if they are successful, they'll be rewarded. This isn't like yeah. this is like a bounty kill, if you think about it. Yeah, it's almost yeah. like a hit. Um, and so what happens is, uh, so James uh, and his two men uh, have been given a royal and a judicial warrant, so not just from the crown, but also from the crown court separately, mm. which gives them um, complete rights to kill the man in the eyes of English law. Um, not that they asked anyone in Switzerland whether that was okay. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so, wait, so, uh, that, so that, it's like a it's like a free part. It's like it justifies their actions. Yeah. It's like the it's 007 like a, thing. It's licensed to yeah, kill, yeah. literally. I was going to say, it's also like um, uh, the privateers. Uh, what's his name? Francis Drake. Where oh, with letters of Mark. Yeah, yeah they're, yeah. they're legally allowed to be pirates. These guys are legally allowed to be assassins. They are they are on the on Her Majesty's or His Majesty's um, service. Service, yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, on the day, so they, they travel across the continent to get over to to find they know that he's in Lausanne because he's too okay. big a name and everyone knows that that's where all the exiles are he's too big a name to hide like that so he's mm. hiding in plain sight and as i say he had three guards with him so probably veterans from the wars who were like skilled men or maybe even paid mercenaries i mean switzerland was known for its paid mercenaries so yeah that, that, that's also a possibility um but to get over there I don't know about the other two, Reardon and Crowley, but um, Sir James changed his name or went under the alias of Thomas MacDonnell. So okay. he, it's very spy sort of oriented. You know, he goes under a, a pseudonym and all of this. Um, the name and- is MacDonnell. Thomas McDonald. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, and there's there are two accounts of how he dies. How sorry, how Sir John Lyle is is assassinated, but they're pretty similar. Um, they seem to have scoped out you know like in a stakeout where sir john goes and where they can catch him in in the street because they don't want to kill him for whatever reason they don't want to kill him quietly Mm. this is clearly meant to be a public display of scaring the god out out of anyone who else wants to attack charles ii yeah absolutely um so they work out that lausanne he goes to the main church in lausanne to to receive i don't think it's obviously it's not mass but just to receive a blessing i guess mm. um on a monday morning so he would go with his family and his and his entourage if you like so they wait until that the service is over and then they position themselves outside the doors now in the olden days doesn't happen anymore obviously um the when when um a service was finished the 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 sort of high and mighties leave first and the yeah. final, like, it goes down in the hierarchy, the social hierarchy, until normal people are allowed out. And <laughs> they they knew that he would be one of the first out because he was John Lyle. You know, he was yeah. this big, big guy. So as they come out, um, Reardon and, and Sir James Cotter, if you believe one story, um, holds, they go in with their, with their swords and they fight against um, Lyle's bodyguards. And then Miles Crowley takes the fatal shot. But it's all a little bit confused because there's another story which has it the other way around where it's actually Thomas MacDonald, who is Sir James Cotter, his his pseudonym, who kills, Mm. who actually does kill uh, Sir John Lyle which obviously I prefer. Oh, I don't prefer it. That sounded weird. I, I want. I want my guy to be like more important. Yeah, yeah. That, no, I think you can prefer it. You want. You want to take credit for it. But you know, he is reportedly uh, said to have shouted at, at Sir John Lyle, my my relative, shouted "Vive le roi," which means "Long live the king," and uh, then shot him. So nice. it was a real like. It was a revenge kill. It was like you yeah. killed my my monarch, I'm now going to kill you for what you've yeah. done. And possibly to the people around where he lived. I mean, Cork was was probably decimated by, by Cromwell. Well, mm. actually it was. Mm. I remember the, the sacking of Cork happened in that ter- time period. Yeah. So yeah, he was, he was a hated man. Um, and actually, once they'd killed him, they were actually, all three of them managed to get away. None of oh, them wow. died there. So they managed to hold off the... Uh, the bodyguards and then just run away which is basically what happened um and then they get back to london and they are received with major major rewards so they were wow. given financial support um my uh, so james cotter becomes um he becomes the king's man 
in Cork, which means he's sort of like the chief justicia of the whole of Cork, mm. and later actually becomes uh, the governor of Montserrat, which is a island out in out in uh, the West Indies, on behalf mm. of the king. So he has a career that goes from being down and out to reviving a family which was doing pretty badly, yeah, <laughs> all the yeah. way up to the top. Um, so yeah, and um, he was then. And not, just to finish the story of Sir James Cotter, after Charles II dies, his brother, James II, comes into power. And James II was a major Catholic, actual Catholic. Wow. So then there's a major problem there because just like with Charles I, the British, the English people do not like that in any way. So they get a Dutchman named William of Orange, who becomes William III of England, who's Protestant, to come over. Yeah. And there's a big fight at a place called the Battle of the Boyne, which was up in, in Ireland, between James II and William III. James II famously loses and flees to France. But who was the commander of his armies? Sir James Cotter. Wow. And unlike... So Sir James fought, even after his king had fled, he fought to the bitter end. And then, unlike most of the other Catholic lords, English Catholic lords... He was allowed to keep his lands because he was he had always treated Protestants fairly in his domains. So oh, most wow. of them lost their lands, but Sir James Cotter kept his lands and was allowed to sort of retire, if you like. Um, oh, nice. So lands. he actually has a very nice tail and does it is fine with the rest of his life. Yeah. No, he, he dies of old age. He wow. does all right. Yeah. Well, good for him. Yeah. That's, he died that's in 1705. And actually, he dies at the age of seventy-five. I mean, he had a he had a life. That's a you know? that's an intense life. That's pretty amazing, and might be one of the most successful assassination stories we've told, like real ones we've told. Um, yeah. Other than stories, because he goes, no one dies from his side. They succeed in their mission, and they come home and are fabulously rewarded for their actions and seen as heroes. Absolutely, absolutely, and and I think I think part of their success is because. It's choosing when to fight, you mm. know. So, like, by having the royal warrant, no one's going to fuck with you if you've got the royal seal with you. You know I what I mean? The, like, the Swiss probably didn't mind. It's like there's some Englishman killing another Englishman, and the King of England is fine with it. We're going to stay out of it. We don't give a shit. You know when um you um like say park a car in a car park and it says do not leave valuables in car it's not our responsibility if they get nicked yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah the same yeah. thing the swiss went bet- not our problem <laughs> yeah yeah the swiss are like yeah you can stay here but we're not going to defend you if your mates come back and and want to kill you like that's yeah. not our job you can hang around but we don't we're not here to protect you you're not asylum seekers which we will protect you are just living in our state we remain neutral throughout the entire process yeah exactly wow that's such yeah. a cool story and such a success story yeah it really is, isn't it? It's I I only found this story out about um, four months ago. Uh, one of my COVID lockdown projects was to look into <laughs> this man, and actually much more interesting than I was expecting. It's quite hard though to sort of reconcile that there's a murderer in the family. I mean, I, even if it is by royal decree, he just shot a man dead. You know? Yeah. And, uh, I mean, it's... I feel like I have slightly glorified him in this, but he was. <laughs> yeah, it is a funny thing. <laughs> I think I think you can kind of see. You can kind of see him in a more positive light. Um, and maybe I'm projecting this onto it. Um, but, you know, if you see him as, you know, he uh, hunted down a man who killed a king when that king himself got lots of people killed. And, you know, monarchies back then weren't the best. But if you see him as hunting down a man who supported a government that absolutely destroyed the Irish, that's more yeah. reasonable. It's kind of, you know, you can see him as being... I, I prefer... I mean, back then... They wouldn't have spoken about it. They saw it as, no, 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 he did it for the king because that plays better. That sounds more official. It sounds right. Whereas modern day, actually, I'd be more happy to find out that he did it because uh, because it was revenge for all the destruction that government did to the Irish. Because that's yes. a much worse, that's a war crime. That's horrible stuff. And that the guy kind of got away with it. I mean, you kind of see it as, it's not quite as bad, but I was thinking it's it's sort of the similar to like the Nazis who fled and went to Argentina. You know, these people who did awful things and because they are powerful and rich enough, they were able to escape, but they are hunted down um, much and, later on by... Yeah, but they're put killed. on trial, whereas this guy... Uh, they are put on trial. Was, 
judge, jury, you, and executioner. All I mean, you can't one. imagine that a trial would have gone any different. Like he, he maybe True. they could have brought him back, and then they would have beheaded him. Like it's not like it would have been that different. I, I no. can't imagine he would have got off on trial. So no, yeah, I agree. And actually, um, I, I, I remember listening to Blind Boy, the Blind Boy podcast. This is just mm. a little bit of a, a little add-on to that. Um, mm. saying that. Cromwell, amongst other things, I mean, he obviously butchered the Irish more than any other English person. He is yeah. responsible, but the Cromwell is still a hated name in Ireland today. Um, he actually killed all of Ireland's wolves, and I know that sounds weird, but because he killed the wolves, the ecosystem, the forests began to dwindle because of mm. without having the top predator it had a massive impact on the whole ecosystem so Herbivore ireland used start to be eating a lot all the plants more, yeah exactly so yeah. ireland used to be much more wooded and densely forested and actually now if you go there it's just loads and loads of fields i mean that's a little bit of a, a generalization mm. but it actually Lots is of and, and it actually means that he not only butchered the people who live there he actually changed the landscape he like murdered the trees as well. Like he's just an awful, awful man. Um, a, and yeah, I really guy, don't. Yeah. Have, and in our current political uh, debate about you know um, statues, and mm. I'm not an advocate for pulling them down or whatever, like whatever anyone thinks. But I do think that having Cromwell just right up in front of Palace of Westminster, mm. and people think he was a great guy, but actually he was a terrible human being. You know, so he's, he's know. kind of a one. he's kind of a, a really bad example to use for anyone trying to argue the Republican argument because it's still something that happens one day. You know, people are always arguing, "Oh, do we really need the monarchy?" I'm sure, whenever the Queen uh, passes on, that the question will be because the Queen is very popular, and is very good, and whereas Charles is not as popular, and so you know whether or not um, people start thinking, "Oh, do we really need a king anymore?" Because it's and different, you, you know. Cromwell, yeah. Look at Cromwell. Yeah, yeah. You don't want him as an example of what happens if you get rid of the monarchy. Not yeah, that it's it would a re- be like that, but it's not a good thing for them to have in the front. No, and I don't think it would. And you know, I I go back and forth on the whole Republican argument. I still kind of like having the monarchy, um, but and we won't dive into that now. But I think yeah, it really weakens their cause. The fact that they can point the one time we were a republic. Um, since the Romans, which is also a bad example for for republics, <laughs> you know, England has not done well with republics. You know, we 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 did terribly with the Romans. We had our own one; it sucked. We lost our war with the uh, Americans um, when yeah. they became a republic. We're not we're good the, with republics. We're the oppressors of republics in our yeah, history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and both. oppressed. And but then the English people are oppressed by republics. Not the American yeah. one, um, but you know the, the English one. Yeah, yeah, the Roman Republic we were oppressed by, and then the and then Cromwell's Republic we were oppressed yeah. by. So it's it's it, it, yeah, it's a hard argument yeah, to make. It is a hard argument to make, and I think at the time it was such a tumultuous time in terms of um, changing loyalties. And actually, as a final side note, Sir James leaves his family in a much better state than when he was born, and his son was also called Sir James. And Sir James the Younger was executed in Cork for being a Catholic supporter of James the Second. Like I said, he fled, so he suddenly had William the Third in, and uh, William the Third had Sir James Cotter the Younger executed. In wow! Cork. Yeah, so, wow, so these just these goes conflicting on. loyalties just mm. carry on because of, you know it because they didn't want to support a Dutch king. They were like, no, mm. no, 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 the rightful king is James the Second, and yeah. because of that. Unlike his father, he was less politically um, adept Savvy. at moving and shifting mm. his allegiances, you know. So, yeah, it just shows you. It was a, t- a cutthroat time. and Yeah, yeah absolutely. Interesting. Anyway, oh, so interesting. Uh, let's, uh, let's move on now to the closer look for this week, which yes. will be done, as always, by Patrick for my episodes. So what we got today? <laughs> so, um, well, that story was, and actually, it's, I'm very excited to talk about this story because actually, I, as you were saying, I've been thinking of more and more parallels because this is another story of revenge i know that one wasn't it's it's kind of revenge kind of a justified killing but this is also a story of revenge and also a bit of a story of justified killing um but kind of spun on its head a bit um and we'll be jumping over to china which is a place we haven't covered before which is nice to nice to jump to oh exciting i'm looking forward to hearing this let's do it (laughs) 
Okay, so uh, yeah, as I said, for this week's Closer Look, we will be looking at China um, in uh, in the 19th century. No, not 19th century, 20th century, 1900s, <laughs> the 20th century. <laughs> nice one. <laughs> Two seasons, I still can't get that right. <laughs> every time, every time. It's so confusing. So 20th century, so 1935, I'll just say the date, that's a much easier way of doing it. <laughs> Um, but uh, but like you, I'm also going to start with the assassination actually to to lean into oh, this great. a bit more. Oh, great! Oh, cool. Yeah, it's, okay, let's it's do a it. Cool way of starting. I like doing this. Yeah. Um, so we are in the 13th of November 1935 in Tianjin City, China, and at 3 p.m. on the 13th, a Buddhist monk by the name of Sun Chang Fang begins to lead a prayer recitation. You know, giving out to uh, other members at his temple. Shortly after this prayer begins, however, a young woman by the name of Shi Tianqiao walks into the temple, approaches the monk from behind, and fires three rounds into the back of the monk's head, killing him what? dead. Yeah. What? Brutal. What the fuck? Yeah, yeah, it's messed up, isn't it? Um, however, Tianqiao doesn't leave. She doesn't flee. She stays at the scene and decides to, and chooses to turn herself in because she believes that her actions are noble and that the people will agree with her. And she's right to think that, because in a few months' time, she will receive a full pardon for her actions. What? Yeah. I was going to say, this This sounds like Charlotte Corday, because she did the same, you know, she sat oh. in the bath and then sits still. Oh, it's so like Charlotte Corday. Oh, yeah, is it yeah, really? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. yeah. We'll, okay. we'll, get, we'll talk about it at the end, but yeah, yeah, it's very Charlotte Corday. I mean, there's a lot of similarities to, to Charlotte Corday, to Sir John Lyle and James Cotter in this episode. You know, there's a lot of capacity. Brilliant. It's a good one. I love it. <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, why did she do this? And how did she, how the hell did she get a full pardon for seemingly killing a monk in cold blood? Well, to answer that, we now have to jump back 20 years to the actual start of the story. Okay. So, the story starts with a man named Shi Kongbin. He is a soldier at a time in Chinese history, which is a very interesting time in Chinese history. It's just after the fall of the Qing dynasty um, in a period of Chinese history that was known as the Warlord Era. It's actually quite similar to the Sengoku period that we talked about in the Ninja episode. It's oh. this time where the country isn't a united country. It does have a central government in Beijing, but their power and their influence doesn't really reach beyond Beijing. They are unable to really control their country, and most of the country is split up into various military dictated regions um, controlled by warlords, hence the term the warlord era. Okay, so it's gone sort of back into feudalism. Yeah, it's a bit like that. Similar. It's just they're not really able to control uh, their people and it's kind of the militaries that are taking over power. And it's all these different... It's quite funny. They're called military cliques, which is obviously cliques. just some translation to to the English uh, You version. can't sit with us. Yeah, it's very like that. You know, that's what they call. But apparently cliques had a name before secondary school drama. Um, but yeah, so there's these military cliques. And Shi Kongbin is an officer. He's actually comes from a farming background, but was able to rise through the ranks to become a lieutenant under a particularly brutal warlord named Zhang Zongchang, who is quite an infamous general. I won't go too much into him, but he's known as the dog meat general oh, for cool. some supposedly that's what he there's a drink that he used to drink that was called dog meat or something is the oh. but he's got a he's got a weird reputation he's 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 a bit of a philanderer he he's very aggressive he brutally puts down um any opposition to him but we won't get into him just a um, dickhead basically yeah he's just kind of okay. a tyrannical guy um but yeah a warlord um of uh, of a province of china but shi kongbin also has a daughter um named shi gulan which roughly translates to Valley Orchard, which is quite sweet. Oh, that's um, lovely. But, um, <laughs> better than dog meat. Yeah, better than dog meat. But in October 1925, Shi Kongbing is leading a detachment of soldiers when he is ambushed by one of Zhang's rival warlords. And after this ambush, he, he is taken prisoner and then he is beheaded and his head is impaled on a pike outside a local railway station. Oh, dear. Okay. So... Fairly brutal work. But this warlord, this rival warlord who makes this attack and sticks this guy's Shi Kongbin's head on a spike, his name is Shun Chang Fang, who in 20 years' time, after retiring and becoming a monk, will be shot in the back of her head. And that's oh. where that story began. Right, hang on. So how is um, 
uh, the main woman related to the lieutenant? So, Shi Kongbin's daughter, Shi Gulan, after hearing of her father's death and beheadle, behead, beheadle? beheading, beheading. <laughs> um, she swears bloody revenge and decides to change her name to Shi Tian Chiao. Which Tian oh. Xiao roughly translates to something like sword wielder. So she goes from Valley Orchard to Sword Wielder. So she changes her name. Hard to say exactly why, possibly as a cover, so that she could, you know, although she kept her family name of she. So it might it's just like be. Like Thomas McDonald, isn't it? Yeah, Same exactly. Thing. She's kind of taken on this new identity. Quite, I mean, not too dissimilar to um, Sir James Cotter becoming, what was it, Thomas McDonald? You know, taking on a name. I mean, he was doing it as an undercover effort, but she it sounds like she kind of did it because she saw herself transforming into this new person that would hunt mm. down the the murderer of her father. And that's what this, this tale is. It is a tale of revenge. Wow. Okay. Like so, a vendetta. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So um, Tian Chao tracked Sun's movements um, through the years. Over 20 years, she's tracking and watching him. She can't strike while he's a warlord, but eventually he is defeated uh, a number of times and then moves to Tianjin and sets up a Buddhist society and becomes a Buddhist monk and kind of retires into this sort of peaceful life as this Buddhist monk um, to live out the rest of his days in Tianjin. But this is where Tian Qiao finds him, finds out, learns his routine. She actually attends the Buddhist society for a number of weeks to learn his routine, acting Holy like shit. she's feigning interest, learns when he'll be vulnerable. And then on the 13th of November, 1935, walks in and fires three rounds from a browning pistol into the back of his head. And that's her revenge fulfilled. Shit. Yeah. I, that is just so sort of poetic i know that sounds weird but it really feels quite sort of there's a poetic nature to it as well as it, it is butchering obviously it it's very you know? um it sounds like a tale you know it's this long drawn out revenge tale and it's so it's so interesting it's so nice that it's you know it's this female assassin who's going off to avenge the death of her father against this warlord who i don't know too much about um uh, Sun Chang Fang, other than his just military history, he is just a warlord of the region, would have been fairly brutal, possibly not as bad as the dogmeat general who he's fighting. But, you know, military dictatorship, nothing hugely wrong around him. But then he does go on to be a Buddhist monk, so it's hard to really tell. Is this a I good mean, guy? Buddhist monks don't guy? do well on our podcast, do they? They really so, don't. Hey, monks yeah. <laughs> didn't end up very well in the ninja episode, and now yeah, yeah. this for, one's had for, a bad for... ending as well. For a peace-loving religion, it's not quite... I know that people argue that it's not quite a religion, but a, a, certainly a, a way of being. It's certainly got a kind of a bloody history. Although in this case, you know, he went to live a peaceful life and met a bloody end. Yeah, but I wonder if he ever truly changed his colours. Maybe well, he yeah, was just that's in hiding. That's the question. I mean, you know, he did uh, behead uh, just a lieutenant um, and and put, put his head on a spike at a local railway station. I mean, that is fairly brutal i mean maybe in he's trying to send a message yeah it's like yeah. years ago it's like not yeah long this ago. isn't this isn't medieval this is not that long ago so it, it it's pretty brutal i mean china at this time has lived through some and it's about to live through some really brutal times i mean this is just before the japanese invasion so you know it, it is a rough place uh, especially at this time i think it's not too long after the opium wars as well oh. I've got my history right there yeah, not too long. Not too long after. Not too long after, but you know, so you know, China is in a is in a difficult stage at this time, and so war. It's it's like as I said, like the Sengoku period in Japan. War is everywhere, so it's hard to say who's really in the right here. But it is a story of revenge. How did she get her pardon? So, this is where it gets kind of really interesting, and where it's really fun to um, compare it to Charlotte Corday and some of the other assassinations because. It seems from the outset that while this was a very much a planned assassination, it was cold-blooded murder, she really thought about this. She must have also thought about the optics, which is something that very few of our assassins really do, and what um, all of our assassins really should do, because it's so important about how you present yourself. Because after the assassination, you know, minutes after, there's blood splattered everywhere inside this temple, Sun Chang Fang is lying dead, there are witnesses everywhere, and... Tian Chiao doesn't leave, she stays and begins to almost argue her case to the witnesses around her. She speaks to witnesses uh, and declares, no. 
Yeah. She speaks to witnesses and declares, I have avenged the murder of my father. Do not fear. I will hurt no one else, nor will I run away. So she's, you know, arguing that she's not there. She's not, she's not, you know, evil. She's not dangerous. She was there to avenge her murder. And she also starts handing out pamphlets to anyone around her, which uh, includes poetry dedicated to her parents, a thorough explanation of her actions and reasons, uh, and an apology for spattering blood on the walls of the shrine. So she's, she's on it. She's she's got you know the the media outreach immediately. <laughs> she came, yeah, she came prepared. She went to that printer in the copy room and, and got all these like pamphlets made. Although she yeah. probably would have had to re- write them themselves back then. So they were. Yeah. Uh, they, she used a thing called a uh, I don't know how to spell it, a mimeograph, a mimeograph, which a is mimeograph. basically yeah yeah, 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 yeah. It's 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 a very simple way of printing where oh. you just have like a cutout of you have like almost a stencil that you just push ink through. That's um, right, yeah. Yeah, so she made lots of these pamphlets. She can make them and hand them out soon. And she signed each of them, female avenger Shi Tianqiao. So she Very is cool. setting herself up as a, a righteous killer. It's, you know, she's kind of uh, enacting what uh, your ancestor had by royal decree. She's trying to spin this story into an act of, of rightful uh, revenge, as opposed to seeing herself as a, as a cold-blooded murderer. Yeah, and so because of, and because she hangs around and she turns herself in, um, obviously her trial goes, obviously her case goes straight to trial, and because of the complexity of this, it's actually tried three separate times, oh, okay. um, because it, and it gets a lot of public interest because she kind of spins her case as an argument between modern law and uh, tr- uh, historical tradition. Okay. Obviously, the prosecution argue that this is just a clear-cut case of cold-blooded murder, premeditated. She is. A, this is a murder, and 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 a monk. Uh, in that, yeah. it's, you know, a it's, it's pretty awful. Yeah. yeah, a man of peace. However, her defense draw from ancient Chinese texts to demonstrate how this was actually an act of filial piety which basically means the duty of a child to repay their parents' burden from raising them. So it's this kind of very Um. important Chinese tradition. And it's an important tradition in confunction, Chinese, Buddhist and Taoist ethics. And so it is almost at the heart of Chinese culture. It's Confucianism, isn't it? Yeah, filial piety. It's such an important aspect of Chinese culture. And that's where they draw it on. They say that basically they're arguing that this wasn't uh, uh, an evil murder. This was a woman, a daughter, avenging the wrongful killing of a father. And that made the murder morally and legally right. So it's it's this idea of like really... I mean, you know, like I say, she's cut the optics down. I mean, she knows her <laughs> argument. She knew her argument going into this because she made pamphlets. And that's what her defence is. And she's got, a, you know, a, a legal team that is is pushing this for her. And she gets a lot of public sentiment behind it because... You know, they see, you know, this is a this is a time when um, China was coming out of this warlord era where thousands of people would have been killed or lost land to these domineering warlords. And now this young daughter has gone out and enacted her revenge um, on this yeah. warlord who yeah. seemingly had gotten away scot-free um, because he'd been allowed to retire and become a Buddhist monk. That's really interesting, yeah. I was also just thinking about how by murdering him in a Buddhist temple, how many murders have we come across in places of religion in this series? Yeah, like yeah. Thomas it's Beckett, a... the one, the the Archbishop of El Salvador. Then the we Patsies. had the Patsies. Like it's it's ridiculous. Not the Patsies. The 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 Medici's. The Medici. And yeah, yeah. The Medici's. It's just mad how often it happens. I guess it's a place where you know they're going to be at a very specific time. It's a also very a public. Place. Yeah, and maybe it's a. If you're doing this, you assume you are in the right. You must have mm. God's favor, or you must have, you know, the ethical reasoning behind it, because you're so willing to do it in such a in such a important place, an enshrined location. You believe in your actions. It almost it's a way of almost um, justifying your actions, because if it's done within a church, even though you're not supposed to be doing that in a church or in a religious area, possibly you've got God's favor to do it, because you were able to do it for some weird backwards logic yeah so um as i said her case was tried three separate times the first time sian chao's defense was largely ignored and she was sentenced to not no less than 10 years in prison 
Okay. However, because her argument was largely ignored, their case was appealed, and the defence successfully argued that the murder constituted homicide out of righteous anger, which under Chinese law at this time uh, could not get a sentence more than seven years. So they get it reduced down to seven years. And then okay. finally, because neither side are particularly happy with this, it goes to the Supreme Court, who uphold the second ruling and rule that uh, Tian Chao's father had been wrongfully killed and therefore her revenge was partly justified. So they Shit. kind of stick with this. Wow. Um, and it That's seems quite Yeah, it seems quite likely that her quick movement on, you know, getting the pamphlets out there, she had her story set from the beginning. It really helped her because she had a huge amount of public sentiment and there was a feeling within the Supreme Court and the government that they need to kind of push towards a vague acquittal or at least reducing sentencing because the people are loving this female vigilante who yeah. took down um, this retired warlord turned monk. Even though he turned monk, people don't like what he became. It's sensationalist, isn't it? It's They had to appease what the public fervour was asking for yeah it's interesting absolutely absolutely but it doesn't end there because as i said she ends up getting a pardon so two months after the supreme court ruling the government issued an edict declaring that tian chao's murderous behavior constitutes a violation of criminal law but if we consider that she was a lone woman acting upon filial thinking and with little regard for her own safety then her intent merits commiseration and the extraordinary circumstances of her crime are forgivable. So they give her a full pardon for the work. Wow. That's so, pretty, pretty impressive, isn't it? It's, yeah, it's, it's very surprising. There's, there's lots of kind of theories into why exactly they want to do that. Possibly public sentiment were pushing them towards it. They, it also kind of fit with the government at that time's um, sort of current agenda of to preach family values and in particular filial piety so it kind of fit in with this kind of feeling and they're pushing this new kind of it's not really new but you know they're returning to these older ideas of filial piety and like i said the defense were pulling on ancient chinese tracks i think the one they pulled on in particular was from like uh 300 bc e whoa so you know these are ancient stretch, tenets isn't it? of yeah of compunction, but you know these are essential tenets. You know, and it's not something that's left them. It's not these no no. They've ideas. been active. They've been active in China for yeah yeah. Centuries, it's still millennia. such an important part, and it's still such an important part of uh, especially uh, Asian culture, China in particular, but all across Asia and compared to the West, the respect you have for your um, elders and your parents is so important, mm. and it's something that it lives on today and was clearly a huge part of this case. And so Tian Chao gets away with it. She's pardoned and she lives for another 45 years. She dies in 1979. Amazing. What a yeah. story. Yeah. I think so that was she really... She completely gets yeah. away with it. And yeah, that's what I'm saying. Compared to Charlotte Corday, who she thought she was in the right, but, you know... Her wasn't optics were all off. Yeah. She she went after the guy putting out pamphlets and didn't have pamphlets of her own. She should have you know, So basically did... what we're trying to say is as long as you as long as you have made your own pamphlets, yeah. uh, you can commit a, a murder so long as you're ready to hand out your own marketing. If your you can argue your case, public perception and the way your you know, the way your story is told is everything. It's more than any other action you could re maybe not, but like that's such an important part of history. It's, you know, and the other thing is also she was going after a man, a warlord who was retired. She wasn't going after someone who was connected to people in power. So unlike oh, Charlotte yeah. Corday, who went after Marat, who um, was, who was connected with was the definitely connected. Yeah. Jacobins. Jacobins, the, well, I remember. Jacobins, yeah, yeah I remember it. Um, you know, she, Tian Chao went after someone who didn't have any protection, who didn't have any backing by the authorities. And actually the authorities were, she may have known that the authorities were more likely to lean on her side of things. It also probably helps the fact that she, you know, in this one very small case, and this is not the same for any other time in history, it may have helped that she was a woman. People may have took a bit more pity on her. You know, she, she put herself at risk and people like that. People like, she seemed like a heroic figure, a, uh, uh, I was going to say heroine, but that's a bit weird. She was a hero to these people. Yeah. You know, she she took out this man who did... And it was considered... And also, the fact that the Supreme Court ruled that her father had been wrongfully killed justified um, her actions. And so it was easier for public sentiment to get behind her and for the government then to give her a full pardon. Yeah. Well, there you go. What a great so, place to look. 
extraordinary that, story. Yeah, really interesting. And nice that we got to jump to China. And we got to yeah. end on a, so a female assassin because we didn't do we have we didn't have a we didn't have a main story on a female assassin this this season. We we kind of burnt through them last season. Yeah, maybe we did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but so that all that's left for us to do is thank you guys all for listening and keeping up with us. You're actually turning into a bit of an army. We've got quite a lot of listeners now, which is lovely, <laughs> and uh, we're happy that we're not boring you to death. And do we um, have, is it is it an army or should we have a is it a sect? If it's assassins, it's a it's a, yeah, it could, a yeah, clandestine it could be like, sect. <laughs> yeah, um, mm. and uh, just a quick note on the future: we are now going to be going into uh, straight back to the drawing board, as it were, podcast-wise, because yeah. we are a little bit sick of being quite so bloodthirsty, but we still are very <laughs> much impassioned by telling you guys stories from history, um, and so. For our future, our next series, which will be out sometime in the autumn, we're going to take a little break. Um, it will be on. We're going to be centering it around cities, and that's yes. all you're going to get from us because right now we haven't quite worked out the concept. But <laughs> it will be really, really good, and it'll be slightly yeah. less bloodthirsty. Um, but it will. There'll probably still be a, a fair amount. You say of time. that. There's so much blood in all of history. It's really hard I was to do say, non-bloodthirsty history. Yeah, but we're just focusing it around history of cities rather than doing just um, history of murderers. Anyway, thanks so much for listening. And as we said at the beginning, please um, follow us on Instagram. Like us wherever you're getting your podcasts. Tell a friend. Leave a comment. We read every comment. We love it. Uh, send us questions. DM us on Instagram um, and at, at Cloak and Dagger Podcast. And we will see you in the very near future. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much, guys. See you soon. See ya.